Welcome to episode 116, Navigating Insurance for In-Network and Out-of-Network Providers, Ethical Considerations and Important Points, featuring Dr. Ajeta Robinson, Licensed Clinical Professional Counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am very excited today to be spending time with Dr. Ajeta Robinson. She is the owner and executive director at Friends and Transition Counseling Services, LLC, which is a group mental health practice in Bethesda, Maryland. And she is also the CEO of Mastering Insurance, which is an agency that offers credentialing and billing courses and services for mental health professionals. So Ajeta will be joining us today to talk about the ins and outs of in and out of network billing and some of the myths about about that process and how we as providers can navigate it better. Um, Ajeta, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to have this specialization and about your background? Absolutely. So um, I, you know, started my group practice and I started my practice actually when I was an LG. So I was provisionally licensed. And so I had to figure out um, the different things that I could and couldn't do. Um, I thought that I would start, I knew that I wanted to accept insurance just to create access and things like that in my practice, but there was very few insurance companies that would panel me as someone that wasn't fully licensed. And so I did a ton of research so that I could figure out what insurance companies would reimburse my clients, what are the different, you know, kind of nuances. Um, And so while I was waiting in preparation of being able to apply, I just, I read through all of their sites, right? (laughs) I read all of the information and documents that I could find. And then I, you know, asked a lot of questions. And what I learned was that a lot of clinicians either didn't accept insurance because of the unknowns um, or because of the things that might happen, right? Such as audits, things like that. And so in this space where I couldn't accept insurance, I kind of was just committed to being able to make sure that when I could accept insurance, I could be intentional and that I wouldn't be kind of fear-based. And so I kind of just amassed a ton of information and knowledge about different insurance companies and would answer questions in a way that for me was about empowering clinicians to make decisions and how they interact with insurance companies and how that ultimately, I think, impacts the access that we can create, whether we're in network or out of network. And so um, that's kind of what happened. People kept asking me the same questions over and over again, or I would see people ask the same questions over and over again. Um, One one that comes up all the time is just kind of, how do I get started? What is the process? And I was like, oh, I can tell you that. And so I created a checklist with the flowchart because I like flowcharts and, you know, those things. And so it kind of just happened organically because people kept asking questions and I was like, oh, I, I read about that and I would just give the answer and where I found it and, you know, it became a course and then a community. And so, um, and I truly enjoyed talking about insurance, especially um, demystifying, I think, some of the things that create barriers for us as clinicians, but also uh, for clients. And so that's kind of, that's kind of how that happened. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, well, I'm glad that it happened. And many of our listeners know that I also do utilization review. And so Ajeta and I have um, some overlap here, but she's really the expert on this one when it comes to the ins and outs of insurance and billing practices. So why don't we just dive right into this? Um, why don't we start by 
initial considerations regarding this whole in and out of network consideration. I know that I, as a utilization review trainer, have encountered facilities before that say, oh, well, we're out of network. And so the um, the level of care guidelines don't matter. You know, these myths that exist. And as we talk about this, Ajeta is nodding. So she's heard mm-hmm. the same. But so there are these myths that float around and a lot of people are mistakenly um, acting in a certain way and they're they're unintentionally committing fraud. Um, yes. So let's talk about the difference between in and out of network. Let's start by defining those and then we'll start diving in. Yeah, so an in-network provider is really just someone that has contracted with the insurance company. So often that starts with, you know, you submitting an application or an insurance company reaching out and you basically, you signing a contract saying you will treat those members as in-network. And what that means is, is that you commit to um, verifying their benefits and not charging them more than the rate that you've agreed upon and that you will uh, adhere to certain standards such as documentation, um, medical necessity is really what kind of they're talking about there. And really what all that really means is that you agree to document or provide services, right? So take appropriate measures to determine whether uh, therapeutic services are medically necessary. That's really what that means, right? Because some people come to us for for therapy, um, and there's really no medical justification for it. Although we know they could benefit from just having a safe space or someone to talk to, but we have to take the additional lens of does it meet medical ne- medically necessary considerations, right? Um, and so that's those are the things that you agree to consider. Um, when you accept insurance as an in-network provider. And as an out-of-network provider, you are not contracting with the insurance. You don't have an agreement with insurance. And so you perhaps have a little bit of leeway in um, the clients that you see and whether or not you formally diagnose them unless those clients will submit that session that you provide for reimbursement to the insurance company. So what happens in that process is you don't have a contract with insurance, but the client is an activating their contract with insurance, right? As a covered member for the services that you provided, which opens your documentation up for review. Because the insurance company, if they reimburse for a service, they have the right to determine if that service is even eligible for reimbursement. And one of the base criteria for reimbursement being a um, a given or being provided is if it meets medical necessity. So we come right back to the same, you know, kind of criteria. And this is what really hangs up um, co- providers who are out of network is they think because they are not in network, they don't have a contract with insurance, that they don't have to adhere to documenting with um, any of these standards of care. And it's fundamentally not true. Because again, the client has activated a contract. You're a third party to that contract, but it's the patient's record. And so if they activate their contract by utilizing their insurance benefits, you have to furnish information to that client or their third party, which is the insurance company that justifies reimbursing that client. And so I always address this question. Um, It does mean that your your notes can be audited. Um, It does mean you may not you know, receive a request for recoupment because they didn't pay you, but it could result in the client session not being reimbursed by the insurance panel because your documentation doesn't justify the service provided. And so I think that is just so, so important. And then from an ethical standpoint, you know, our ethical um, kind of guidelines um, 
require us to provide a level of service, a modality, interventions that are in the client's best interest. And so that means that we can't decide that I'm going to provide this level of service based on method of payment. That is discriminatory in some ways. And all of the ethical codes talk about not discriminating based on the capacity to pay. So if I have a client in front of me that I know could benefit from EMBR services and I don't offer it because of the reimbursement rates from insurance company, I have done harm to that client. And so it's the same idea, right? Regardless of method of payment, I should still be developing a sound treatment plan, right? That documents progress. And so these really are the standards of care that insurance is kind of requiring us to be held to. I think you brought up a really important point there was that distinction of, um, of using insurance or cash pay or whatever source of payment to impact the quality of our charts. And that's something I also hear all the time, like, well, I don't accept insurance or I only work with this EAP. So those charts are really um, nitpicky if you real, really detailed, but my cash pay clients, not so much. And I'm glad you bring up that piece because I think that's one of the major misconceptions. And, and perhaps there are clinicians here who are listening that aren't even involved with insurance or are considering it. And for those of you who are not yet involved with insurance, you are still bound to the same guidelines about medical necessity. So why don't why don't we talk about that? Tell us how you see medical necessity, regardless of funding source, um, whether that's cash pay, pro bono, um, insurance, grant based, whatever it is. How do you define medical necessity and explain it? Yeah, so I I define medical necessity as really making sure that we have we understand enough about what what's happening for the client. Right. Um, And that starts at the intake process. Right. So what are we doing in the intake Um, history, taking information, gathering so that we can develop an informed, um, engaged treatment plan? We're partnering with the client. So I understand that this client comes in for anxiety, but because of my clinical knowledge and expertise, I know that I'm doing grief work. The anxiety is a manifestation of this other thing that happens to live in the bereavement world, right? And so although the client's initial goals might be different, my way of understanding what's contributing to their manifestation of anxiety is informed by my theoretical orientation and my training. That should flow over into the assessments that I administer. It should flow over into how I document what I believe is exacerbating the client's symptoms and overall quality of life. So medical necessity starts at that first encounter, right? Do I even think that based on what the client is coming in with, that there's something that is that I can do clinically, right, from an evidence-based perspective that could improve their quality of life and reduce symptoms. Because that's ultimately, at the the end of the day, what we are measuring and what we are looking at impacting, right? Now, do those symptoms align, their severity, their frequency, their duration, align with clinical criteria, diagnostic criteria, because that's the second layer, right? Um, We know that we encounter clients who are experiencing a variety of different things, but it doesn't meet diagnostic criteria as defined by the DSM-5. Those two pieces go hand in hand when we're establishing medical necessity. The other piece that then happens is, is now that I know that they meet the criteria for PTSD, right? And based on the impact that it's having on their quality of life, what are the gold standards, whether it's from an, you know, a REBT perspective or an EMDR perspective about 
the length of treatment that's necessary to see an improvement in the client's overall quality of life. That should be determining the frequency at which we're meeting this client and the duration of those sessions. What happens often is that we set a standard that we see clients weekly for 53 plus minutes, right? Because it's convenient that we have appointments that start on the hour, right? But that is not justified anywhere in what the client is presenting with and what we know about what our clinical training and our modalities of intervention tell us about how we improve quality of life, right? And so those are things that we want to be intentional about from start to finish. And if we document how we got there, our treatment recommendations and our objectives of treatment, we've documented medical necessity in the way that the insurance company needs us to, right? So if I open up that file, I can see that I administer an assessment, right? It may be a trauma scale. Um, I've done a thorough intake. I understand the level of functioning and it's documented in a very clear and concise way. And then my recommendation recommendations based on what the client is presenting with, what the evidence tells us, the literature tells us about how we intervene every step of the way that information is documented. So if Blue Cross Blue Shield asked me to justify why I did what I did, my treatment record gives a breadcrumb. Every single progress note, I'm assessing their mental status. I'm assessing the prevalence of those symptoms and what I am doing in response to what the client is presenting with. Um, and then what are the next steps? And so I use a soap note method for documenting kind of treatment. It just needs to be consistent and intentional um, and not because it's what's convenient for me as a therapist or what works from a scheduling perspective or because I have, you know, childcare coverage during those hours. Like I really have to be intentional about why I'm offering consistently that 53 minute session. Um, and does it align with the presentation and the symptomology. And so I think that is kind of just very basic bones, things that we need to think about when it comes to medical necessity and what are the reassessment periods, right? And so when I do kind of auditing of notes, I don't regularly see the assessment, the objective assessment from the clinician on how the client is presenting in that session, right? I see all of the subjective stuff <laughs> and the self-report stuff, but I don't see their clinical impression. And insurance companies look for that from a medically necessary perspective. And then we don't often see what the clinician did. So if I say the client appears to be anxious, they were running late for a session, they appear to be oriented times three, what am I doing? I notice these things, but what is my response? We think about that as the intervention. That needs to be pre present, and it's more than clicking those boxes in the note, right? It should be evident, you know, I engaged in utilized EMDR protocol to help actively desensitize the client because of this particular trigger. This is the SUDS level went from a 10 to a, a 3. This is how I know that that intervention was effective, right? Based on the change in the client. Um, and so we just want to be intentional about how we are showing up and that we're getting giving ourselves credit. We do amazing work in the session with clients and we fail to document that work in a, in a consistent, concise way. I think I'm, 
I'm guessing for our listeners, it's interesting to have the two of us having this conversation. Ajeta and I can see each other and I'm sitting here nodding. And what I say to clinicians in my trainings is like, this is why we get paid the big bucks. Like make sure you show up in that note. It's not just client said, client did. It's also therapist facilitated discussion about blah, blah, blah. And yes. I'm, I appreciate you bring that up from the medical necessity standpoint. And again, for our listeners, medical necessity matters regardless of what funding source you're using, but particularly in this conversation about in-network and out-of-network, just to restate something that Dr. Robinson has already said, when we are um, billing as an out-of-network provider, we are still needing to meet those standards and we're still subject to potential audits. And basically how that works, and, and I, of course, want to hear more from Dr. Robinson about this, but they're going to request our records and then be evaluating, is this care medically necessary? Um, you know, how much have we paid you? How much are we going to pay you as a clinician? And was that okay? Was it medically necessary care? Um, so out of curiosity, what are other myths or misnomers? Just con what other sources of confusion about the in and in and out of network piece? Like, could you be an out of network provider with lots of different insurance companies? Um, how do you determine who you're going to work with? Like, how does that process work? Yeah, so I think that um, one of the other myths that comes up um, quite a bit outside of like the way that you document is that sometimes you know when we are telling clients how they can access their out-of-network service as, as an out-of-network provider, we tell them that one of the benefits of not using their insurance is that their diagnosis won't be on record, right? And that it might provide some buffering or some protection from having those notes visible and available. And for all the reasons we just stated, that is not true. Unless a client never submits for reimbursement, right? Then the insurance company can't come and say, I want to audit the, because they haven't activated the relationship between the insurance company, right? Um, but many of us say that, right? Many clinicians say, you know, we have it on our websites or we're using it as a way to uh, get clients comfortable with paying out of network because we are telling them that it will protect their medical information. And that client then takes that super bill and submits it to the insurance company. The diagnosis is on record. And so it is just not true. Um, and it's also a very fear-based tactic to use. And I think that there's so many other ways that we can be okay being out of network without utilizing fear as a way to justify that decision. And I think that it is a individual decision that should be that should be grounded, again, not in fear of navigating insurance or being involved in medical, you know, documenting medical necessity, because we're not exempt from those anyway, um, but in a way that allows us to honor our business model. And I think that we should all be intentional about what insurances we bill, whether it is in network or out of network. Um, we don't bill Medicaid for a variety of reasons. We see Medicaid clients pro bono. One of the things that I'm committed to is to creating access to services. And for me, administratively and logistically, billing Medicaid or being in network with Medicaid in my state is too cumbersome. It gets in the way of doing the actual work. My commitment is to work, right, is to do the actual work and create access. So I've chosen to fund, you know, from my practice revenue, access for Medicaid clients, Right. And so I think that we want to be intentional about how we interact with what insurance companies we take. It should be a data driven approach. And I'll give the example in my state, Blue Cross Blue Shield is one of the largest payers. And so I know what demographic I serve. 
they are significantly more likely to be in network with Blue Cross Blue Shield. So even if I am not, I might learn how I build Blue Cross Blue Shield as an out-of-network provider as another way of, of creating access, right? Because I will encounter their process one way or another, but I am more informed about how I explain that process to clients, right? Um, again, my goal is always creating access for clinicians and for clients and information, valid information allows us to do that more intentionally. Um, I think other myths um, related to just navigating insurance in general um, really is around like how we document the diagnosis, right? And so there are some codes that um, insurance company, it might be the most relevant code um, for services, um, but insurance won't cover it. And this gets us in some, some ethical waters. For example, when we bill couples, this is the one that comes up over and over and over again. 90% of the couples that I work with, I can't justify medical necessity for their services because of the way that uh, family therapy is the, the billable code. Couples therapy is not listed in the American Medical Association as the uh, service of record, right? But we often treat couples as families. What that means is, is that many of the couples I work with, their diagnosis really is a Z code, it's relational. And many insurance companies say that that Z code is not a medically necessary diagnosis in order to have services reimbursed. And so what do we do as well-intentioned therapists wanting to help these clients because our individual client is struggling and it's something that's happening in the relationship that's contributing to that. We assign a diagnosis to one of those patients that justifies on record insurance reimbursing for that. But the actual, what's actually happening in session isn't medically necessary because we're working on communication. We're working on identity, right? Which again, insurance is like, that's nice, not going to cover it. And so that gets us into some ethical waters when we do that. Um, I'm glad you brought up that point. And I think there is a lot of confusion. I think you and I could talk about that piece in a whole separate episode, just really billing couple and family therapy. And for our listeners, we have actually talked in an episode about this couple therapy billing piece with Barbara Griswold. That's episode 103. So I encourage you to listen to that because there are a lot of considerations, exactly as Dr. Robinson was saying, when we're thinking about what code we're using, what diagnosis we're assigning, who we're billing and how. Um, to, to dive in a little bit more in this out-of-network piece, so let's pretend that I am an outpatient therapist in private practice. I am not an insurance provider. I don't claim to be an insurance um, contracted therapist. And a client comes in and sees me, and so they decide that they want to submit their super bill to HealthNet. What does that mean for me as a provider? And to clarify some confusion about this, does that mean I am now an out-of-network provider? Or what does that mean if the client gets reimbursed by their insurance company? Mm -hmm. So it means kind of logistically that HealthNet will um, likely add your MPI and your W-9 to their database. Because here's the thing is that insurance companies um, need to take appropriate measures to verify or to at least deter insurance fraud, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the reasons, and, and out-of-network providers ask all the time, well, I'm not in network, so why do I need to send them my W-9? Well, a, a client paid for a valid healthcare service and you are a valid healthcare provider, the insurance company needs to know that that's actually true. 
right? And so they will go directly to the source and say, can you confirm that you rendered this service and that you are an eligible healthcare provider and that this is the entity, that's what your W-9 says, is who was paid. They're reimbursing the client, but they need to take efforts to buffer against insurance fraud because what prevents a client from creating their own super bill and submitting it for reimbursement? Believe that it happens. And so they're doing a checks and balances to minimize or to, to to, yeah, to minimize insurance fraud. Um, you don't have to be the one that's directly committing it, but unfortunately it does happen in a variety of circumstances. And so um, as a eligible and valid healthcare provider, we just want to validate that these are the services that you actually provided this client. They could change the super bill that you gave them. I mean, we don't want to think about our clients as doing you know nefarious things, but it happens. Um, and so that's really all the insurance company is wanting to do because they also have to be able to um, have their books balanced, right? And to be able to stand up to the own their own auditing by insurance commissioners and those things about how they created access to care, what's the actual cost of care for certain services, right? There's these tons of public databases. Well, that data comes from somewhere. Um, some insurance companies provide those. Some of us, you know, our data is being mined. Our websites are being crawled so that we can really understand what is the fair market charge for these types of services in this area. And your super bill is just one data point that helps populate that information. So to clarify, if a client submits for their insurance company, for reimbursement. That doesn't mean that you are suddenly an out-of-network provider, but it does mean that you may need to communicate with the insurance company. And to clarify with listeners, how does this crash into HIPAA and the management of protected health information? Yes. So it, it can be, it can kind of, you know, we're, we're always dealing with PHI, right? Anytime we're dealing with protective health information, we want to be mindful about the mechanism of communication. Um, and so that ultimately means for us as providers that we're being asked to furnish this information, just making sure that you um, are furnishing that information in a way that is HIPAA compliant. So we have the HIPAA compliant facts or sending it back via mail, but only really providing the information that's being requested. Far too often I, I um, you know, see providers provide information that's just not necessary. So being mindful of what, what information is truly needed on that super bill um, or that's truly needed um, in these requests, right? And so there are things that we can do. Oftentimes we might be asked for certain pieces of information and we can simply write a letter instead of making the entire file available. If they come back, sure, we might ultimately provide it, but our first line of defense is to protect as much patient information as we can, even if insurance does what I call a little bit of an overreach. Are they entitled to the information? Yes. Can I provide them a letter that might satisfy their need? Absolutely. And so that's usually the site that we err on instead of just opening that entire record up. Um, I might provide a status letter that answers the specific questions without um, opening the entire chart. And so mm -hmm. just really be, I think, intentional about the purpose of the request that might help guide you in what you actually furnish. Um, and so I think that's how we kind of navigate some of those pieces. Mm -hmm. So for people that, uh, for clinicians that have said to themselves, okay, I, I don't want to be empaneled with Blue Cross, with Blue Shield, with Cigna, and I want to be an out-of-network provider. So they get a call from a client who says, I have fantastic out-of-network benefits. Let's have a you know brief phone call. Let's set up a session. What does that mean for that provider if they're an out-of-network um, provider 
what what steps they need to take in terms of verification of benefits. How does that how does that flow into um, really their day to day business management of what they need to be considering when they're doing an out of out of network uh, service? Mm-hmm. So again, I think this uh, this aligns with what your business model might ask of you, right? So what service do you want to provide that aligns with the way that you want to run your business? And so I really think about this as kind of like three different tracks. And depending on which track you choose, it will determine which systems or processes you put in place to navigate that. So if you're an out-of-network provider, you can be out-of-network and collect your full fee, whatever, or the agreed-upon fee upfront from the client and provide them with the super bill. You are really out of the loop unless the insurance company wants you to submit your W-9 to them directly. Um, Again, if the client submits for reimbursement, you still can be audited, but you have less exposure than the other two options that I'm going to mention, so to speak. You still need to document, you know, from a medically necessary perspective, but there's a lot less interaction. You're not verifying benefits. You are just collect providing the super bill uh, to facilitate reimbursement for the client. So that's one option which repro- provides or pro- requires the least amount of interaction on your part. The other option is, is to collect your fee from the client and then submit that claim on their behalf as an out-of-network provider. In this instance, you um, will need a mechanism to submit that claim electronically. Um, You will need to, if the client has paid you upfront and the client is being reimbursed, then on that electronic claim, you need to not accept assignment in insurance language that means they're not paying you, they will reimburse the client directly. Um, That also means um, that you need a process in place to gather the client's insurance information so that you can submit it on on their behalf, including a insurance release, which really just allows you to have the client's permission to bill on their behalf. That's really all that means. Um, and so you probably need some administrative support in order to manage that process because you're doing it on behalf of the client. Some hiccups that can occur in that scenario is sometimes the insurance company pays you anyway. So you want to think through what happens if the check comes to you? In that case, you could you know, decide or discuss with the client, do they want you to put um, that credit on file or do you notify the insurance company to reissue it to the client? You want to think through what happens if that occurs because it could. They make a mistake um, not noticing that you've not accepted assignment. The third option is probably the most involved, perhaps, um, where you, as an out-of-network provider, agree to bill the insurance company on the client's behalf and accept assignment, accept payment from the insurance company directly. And this is kind of what that might look like. In that case, you would want to verify that out-of-network benefits. So for the purposes of simplifying the example, let's say you call and insurance says, um, we will pay 80% of the fee, of the contract or the allowed amount, right? And that is $100, up to $100 for that particular service. And your fee is $150. In that instance, because you're agreeing to accept payment in this circumstance from the insurance company, you would bill the client $50 up front and then allow the insurance company to reimburse you the remainder of your full fee. And that would come to your your total cost. In that instance, you need someone who's going to be able to bill or verify the out-of-network benefits, um, the payer ID to bill the out-of-network insurance company, um, 
and a process to submit those claims and follow up on reconciling payment for those claims. And so you need a little bit more administrative support and process in place to manage those tasks. Um, and so it really depends on the um, level for me, the level of service you want to provide or the level of lifting you want to provide for clients. Um, we do the last option. And the reason we do that is because for me, it's easier for my team to just we're verifying benefits anyway, whether you're in network or out of network, we have all the systems in place to navigate that task and we can afford to wait for insurance to reimburse us. That is not the case for all clinicians, depending on where you are or how you even want to navigate that. But those are the three kind of common ways that out-of-network providers can navigate the process. Some of them obviously take a lot of the load off of the client, and that's something that I prefer um, we do when all, when at all possible, which is the reason we do option number three. Thank you for breaking those down because I think that's one of the sources of confusion among providers, which where it's this letter that you get in the mail and it's like, well, do I have to send them something? And like, can I even verify their identity as a client? Like it, it just gets really complicated. Um, yeah. The word super bill, a lot of people use that word. Sometimes clients know that word. It's a bizarre word to begin with. What is yes. a super bill for our listeners? Define it so that they know what we're talking about when we say you can give the client a super bill that you know they may seek reimbursement from their insurance company. Yeah. So super bill is, is really just a medical receipt. So any, any healthcare provider that you see will generate a medical receipt. And so it is different from like a regular receipt that just shows the amount um, and uh, and the signature, perhaps. The super bill includes information that tells the insurance company or the client, because they could be seeking reimbursement from their flexible spending account or some other um, reimbursement kind of mechanism. But it, it indicates who the service, who was the client, who received the service, who provided the service, um, the diagnosis, um, the date of birth of the person who received the service. It includes identifiers such as the CPT code. The CPT code tells exactly what service was provided, right? So we know it was a 60-minute individual psychotherapy session. Um, we know that there was only one unit, so one hour or one, one unit, I'll just use one unit for simplification purposes, um, and then who rendered the service. Um, so that would be the clinician's name and their MPI, and we need the tax ID number um, associated with the organization um, where the provide the service was provided. Um, in this telehealth world, we would include a modifier. A modifier just gives insurance company additional information. Uh, right now, we need to be most of us are providing that service in a telehealth format, and so the modifier tells insurance company that, oh, this was a virtual session, right? Um, or this was a um, in-home service. Modifiers give can give all of those kind of services. Place of, place of code can also do that. So it was an office or it was a home or some other you know hospital. All of those are indicators that are on the super bill. And then you need to also list what was the cost of the service and what was paid. Um, and so sometimes we just list the cost, but the insurance company is not gonna reimburse unless the client has already paid for the service. Um, and so those are just the different components that are needed for this medical receipt. And including all of those um, increases likelihood that the insurance company may not come back and need additional information because you provided them with everything they needed um, on, on a very basic level, right? 
um, to evaluate whether or not this service is covered. From a, I guess, colloquial perspective, I'm curious about your experience. Have you found that providers that just do the super bill method and say, here, you know, here's proof of how much you paid me as a provider, best of luck to you, versus method number three of reimbursement that you mentioned, where the provider is actually billing the insurance company on the client's behalf and accepting the funds? Do you see any different in the audits? Um, and how the insurance company approaches that is because I think some providers, they're thinking, well, if I just give them a super bill, then I'm going to have less contact by definition. And if I am more engaged with the insurance company as an out-of-network provider, then I'm more likely to get audited. No, I don't see any difference um, regardless of of either of those kind of methods. Um, What I do notice is um, providers who routinely, whether they're, regardless of how they're billing, right, whether they're doing method number one or method number three, uh, routinely billing the same diagnosis code, right? Um, That can trigger a utilization review, right? And so we've seen these letters where it says, you're kind of using 90837 more than your colleagues, right? Or more than kind of normal. And that can, you can receive something like that or your client in this case, if you're out of network, might um, be asked for additional documentation to justify the services provided because that's what they might send if you're not in network. If you're in network, they'll send you this utilization review code um, because they're just trying to figure out like what's happening. This is a routine Mm -hmm. thing that doesn't seem to be differentiated based on the client. Um, And so those are things that they're, you know, wanting to understand more why you're intervening in that way. Um, And that could make sense in my practice, we most almost exclusively work with individuals with cumulative trauma. So we use the 90837 code more, um, but we can more readily justify that because of who we serve, right? Um, but that 90837 code combined with an adjustment disorder for 20 weeks is probably going to trigger something, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so we, you know, I think it's a combination of those things, but I don't see any, any differences. Um, obviously, the folks who choose method three have more interaction with the insurance company because they're being paid. And so they're likely calling and following up on, on claims or things of that nature. Um, I, what I do notice is from a client retention perspective, um, what I hear is that there's slightly better retention of clients when the provider is assisting with the claims process Mm. because we're, when we submit claims electronically and we're signed up for electronic funds transfer, we might actually be paid before their next session. Whereas for my, you know, for clients who are submitting it on their own, it could take six to eight weeks to process that. And then if there's an error, all of that's being communicated usually manually via, via the mail. And we, you know, we know that that's usually delayed and that can create a cash flow issue for your clients, which we know can contribute uh, contribute to increased cancellation or no shows because they can't afford to pay out of pocket without with if that reimbursement from insurance company is delayed. Um, and so those are just some things that I noticed, not from an auditing perspective, but from a service you know engagement perspective. What you just said, I think, is really important and meaningful for us to remember. As you and I record this, we just started 2021. So now we have all of these insurance plans that have restarted as of 1231. And that is likely going to affect clients with their deductibles. And goodness knows that out-of-network policies often have higher 
deductibles and in network policies. And I know I've had the experience as a provider that I'll have a client who, you know, I'm, I'm giving them a super bill, they're working with an insurance company, and then they change jobs. And then their financial situation changes because now their new insurance company either doesn't offer an out of network benefit, or whatever it is, and that all of those things um, I think going back to your your earlier point, these are some of the considerations that providers need to keep in mind as they're making decisions about whether or not they're going to be providing a super bill or if they're going to be working in network with insurance companies because you know the deductible just reset or the, the uh, client change insurance companies. And so what was affordable to them now or back then is no longer now. Um, so I'm glad you bring up that piece of client financial responsibility and that consideration about retention and how to work with clients on that. Um, when it comes to coding, um, tell me more of like what you see with out-of-network providers and in coding-based decisions. I know I see on social media, of course, when we all went to telehealth, like, well, what's the location code? But more than that, that piece that you just mentioned about the 53-minute-plus the code and considerations about that. You know, if a client shows up 10 minutes late, what do we code? Can you speak a little bit about these things that we need to know as providers? Absolutely. And so uh, the number one thing is, is that you have to code based on what actually occurred. And so you may have allotted a 53-minute hour, but the client session face-to-face -face time actually was only 48 minutes. And so you need to downgrade that code to the applicable one, because if not, whether you're in network or out of network, you have are committing insurance fraud. You are allowing the client to reimburse for a service that they didn't actually receive. And so that piece is really important that we are just mindful of. It matters. It is important. Um, document that, right? And so oftentimes we schedule a client for 9837 and we don't change it. And so we really have to think through the implications of that action. It is committing insurance fraud. And you don't have to be a contracted provider to do that, to be complicit in the process. And so that's a bit, that's a big one that I see. And it is your responsibility as a clinician, whether you're in network or out of network, to understand the minimum requirements for that code. So the minimum billable um, code is a 16 minute session, right? So your 90832 requires at least 16 minutes of interaction. You don't have a code you can bill if it's less than 16 minutes. And so that is really important that we're mindful of. And it doesn't matter whether you're in network or out of network because you have a responsibility to code that session correctly. Now, if you're out of network, you may want to stabilize your reimburse your your fees, right? That if a client comes to a 90837 session 15 minutes late, do you cancel that session or are they still responsible for paying that full fee although they got a shorter session, right? You want that to be clear in your informed consent, your whatever documentation you're giving to clients about how those sessions work. Um as an out-of-network provider, but you still need to downgrade that code from a billing perspective, from an, a, a super bill perspective. It, it needs to be accurate. Um, the other piece I think that's important here um, is in, it, in this telehealth space. Right now, COVID is creating some exceptions on allowing for audio-only um, sessions in some limited cases. I think Medicare had this uh, 
is was making this exception. And we know many commercial companies follow what Medicare does. Um, but the reality is, and I really want people to understand what exemptions or exceptions are being made in the midst of a public health pandemic and what is generally and uh, customarily allowed. Audio only sessions do not meet the basic criteria for telehealth services that's reimbursable, right? And so we wanna make sure that there's both audio and video um, because that is the gold standard. We also have a ethical responsibility to not practice out of our scope, right? We have that responsibility from a code of ethics perspective, from a licensure perspective, and from an insurance contract perspective. So there's multiple layers of responsibility that we have. And I think we don't think about needing to be intentional about receiving training on how to provide telehealth services. We all just went online. There's some things that you need to know how to do to assess suicidality in a telehealth space, right? That you need to be aware of on how to triage or or reground a client, right? Who's dissociating that, uh, how we build rapport in this in this telehealth space that the insurance companies generally will just ask you if you're in network to attest that you have the training and the knowledge to deliver the service in the manner in which you deliver them, right? Which includes virtually. And so again, we're in some ethical waters here if we attest that yes, we can, and we haven't gone and received the training. And so just make sure that we're doing that. I know we all went online out of necessity. Use this time to get the training so you understand how to deliver effective um, and ethically responsible telehealth services. And so I think those pieces kind of go hand in hand. I'm, I'm glad you bring up that point too, because as you're talking about this, there are so many things that we need to keep in mind as providers. And I think that is one of the reasons that we see people unintentionally committing fraud. And, and I'm glad you bring up that point. I mean, I know I see it all the time in my work too. More often than not, these things are not done um, maliciously, intentionally. It's because we just don't know. Uh, yeah. And then we find ourselves in trouble and nothing good happens from there. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. One piece that just popped up that I've been seeing more frequently and I don't think it's going to go away is um, we've had an increase in clinicians give up their physical office space. Mm. But they're wanting to be in network with insurance companies. And so I would be remiss to not mention that um you are committing fraud if you complete that insurance credentialing application and you list a physical location that's a P.O. box. So we've been talking a lot about getting these premium P.O. box or these premium UPS kind of addresses that give you a physical street address. And you know that it's tied to an actual P.O. box. A P.O. box is not sufficient to credential with insurance company. It's fine for mailing, but it's not a practice location. You can't see clients there. So you are willfully providing inaccurate, fraudulent information, and you're doing it on the onset of submitting that application. And the application asks you, right? It lists federal codes that ask you if the information contained in this contract, in this agreement, is, is false. If you are willingly providing false information, you have vi violated your contract and a host of federal laws. And so we think about insurance as being these big, bad companies, right? And I'm not saying they're all good. I'm not even going to get into that conversation, but they are regulated by a higher body, 
right? The federal government regulates commercial insurance companies. The states, every state that an insurance company does business is regulated by the insurance commissioner. If it's, you know, government funded, there's an ombudsman, there's additional regulatory agencies involved and you have violated their standards and their, their, there's statutes, right, that are involved here. And so we really want to be intentional about how we're navigating that process. So I'm never one to identify a problem without providing some types of solutions. So what do we do, Ajeta, right? Because I'm just scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> Indeed, I'm sure listeners like, oh my God, now what? Oh my goodness. You can list your home address. You got to be intentional that it's going to show up in the directory, but it's a place of service where you can provide telehealth-only services. Um, what I have been encouraging people to do is to sublease from your colleagues, right? Get Give yourself a valid physical address. You could use a company such as a co-working space as long as it meets the standards of being able to provide confidential care. Again, these are all valid like real physical locations that if an insurance company said, we want to audit, they could ask for an in-person audit, where are you going to take them? To the post office? You cannot. And so just really think intentionally about that um, because you do need a valid physical location unless some insurance companies have modified their credentialing applications that allow you to select. It is a telehealth only practice. They are adjusting. Some of them are more progressive than others, but make sure the information that you're putting on these applications, that it's valid, that it's truthful, um, because their systems are getting sophisticated, right? Medicare and Medicaid systems have always been able to recognize that you entered a physical address that's actually a PO box. Commercial insurance companies um, are now catching up with this technology. Um, one really easy way to notice that they're catching on is CAQH has done some significant revamping of their system to be able to catch them. They will tell you now that this is an invalid address. They are utilizing the you know, geographic information processing systems to capture that that's actually not a valid address, right? And so you don't want to be on the back end of getting through credentialing and contracting and that be the thing that triggers an audit. And so just be really careful because again, it is, you know, you're entering a contract with false information, which, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money. They could sue you, right, for for doing that. Um, I am glad that you brought up that peace and consideration about these kind of things. Um, because like you said, for many of us, we weren't accustomed to doing online therapy. And so we did this rapid transition and then need to keep these things in mind now as it's becoming more standard, I think, for a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about recoupment, the R word. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? What do out-of-network providers need to keep in mind if they get that letter that makes them shake in their boots? Mm-hmm. So out of network providers, if they're not being, so let me back up. Recoupment is just basically the, you know, we call it a clawback. Um, and so the insurance company has reimbursed for a service and they've, they've done an audit or review and said, wait a minute, we actually shouldn't have paid for that. We're actually going to take that or recoup that money back from you. Out of network providers have a little less to worry about regarding this if they're not being paid by insurance. And so this is one of the reasons that, you know, some of us, if you're out of network, that you collect from the client and let them deal with reimbursement because it minimizes, there's nothing to recoup if they didn't pay you. So that's one piece. But let's say 
you do you chose option three, where you are billing insurance and allowing them to pay you the portion they're going to cover. Um, in that case, the insurance company could come back and say, actually, we did an, a review of the that client you know record, and we realized that when we pay for that service, their premium had lapsed. They actually didn't mm. have coverage, right? And I always ask when you get that request. You should always reach out to the insurance company. You shouldn't just ignore it because you may have some options that um, result in you actually not having to reimburse that money. So there's some 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 kind of case law that supports what I'm about to say. And I know that recoupments are just controversial in general, but we are the low hanging fruit, especially if we are allowing insurance companies to pay us electronically. They already have access to our bank account. So there's really nothing other than this administrative process I'm going to tell you that stops them from either just going and taking that money back or taking it from future claims that they're going to pay. It's very easy to get their money from us, right? And we're low-hanging fruit because we're more likely to keep our license renewed and stay in business somewhere. They can get their money. What you should do is look at the nature of the recoupment request and ask yourself this very basic question, who violated the contract? Was it a violation in the service you provided because it didn't meet medical necessity, right? Your your part of the contract is documenting what you provided and being clear that what you provided was medically necessary. That's your part. So is the breach there or did the breach occur between the insurance company and the client? And in this case regarding premiums, you fulfilled the part of the contract that you agreed to, whether you're in network or not, out of network, you, you fulfilled the agreement based on the information that the insurance provided you, right? So when you called and verified benefits, they told you that the person was covered. And so utilize that information in responding to the insurance company, right? We make good faith efforts based on, you know, the information provided on this date with this reference number and the breach occurred with another third party. They're counting on you not knowing that you can ask and bump that up because they actually need to recoup the premium from the client right? And they won't if you will pay it. <laughs> they don't have any incentive to go after a client who is much harder to collect from, right? Um, who's actually their customer, but that's where the breach falls. And so we have people on our team um, who respond to those requests. We don't get a lot of them, but you want to think through where the breach occurred and if you want to push back. So we might ask for um, additional time to review. We might put a dispute on that recoupment request, which will delay um, the recoupment. And so it will give you time to kind of defend uh, against that request. And so I wrote an entire blog post around this, helping you, um, you know, with a sample letter and all that jazz. So um, where did the breach occur? I always ask that question first because it determines how you respond to those requests. That was such a, a thorough explanation about that. And I think very helpful. One of the other things that I was encountering, and this was more working with facilities, but I'm curious if you've encountered it with private practitioners. Um, there was a time a couple of years ago where the assignment of benefits issue got messy. And so a check would be sent to the client that was supposed to be provided to the facility. Um, but by the time any payment was issued, the client was already out of treatment. And then the facility is left having been reimbursed essentially nothing or perhaps nothing. Um, do you see that much with group practices or with private practitioners? Yeah, we do see that. Um, and I think one of the ways that we kind of counteract that is to be really intentional in 
uh, timely, not only in your claim submission, but in your follow-up. And so that's about reconciling that account receivable because you would catch that, that a check was issued and can drill down on where it went. Um, and if it occurred and it went to the client and they're no longer an active client that you can kind of, you know, more readily recoup from, then you may be able to, in a more timely way, get the insurance company to intervene and cancel the check or, or something like that. Um, and so that really, for me, comes down to having solid account receivable processes in place. Um, and this is the case, whether you're in network or out of network, because sometimes we will get um, an ERA, um, a remittance advice or the EOB telling what insurance company paid and the patient's responsibility. Um, and it may list that they paid us, but your accounts receivable, the payment didn't actually come through. And so we received, we did a, a full kind of internal audit and found about $23,000 of income that we, our system said they, they were issuing payment from that we had never actually received the electronic transfer. And so we were able to go back and recoup that. And because it was outside of the payment terms set in our contract, they owed us interest on that money because it was their error, not ours. But had we not found that, they're not going to go back and audit and say, oh, we owe you extra money. Like they might, but it's unlikely, right? And so you want to know that our books were not matching up with what we had in our EHR that we were supposed to receive and what was actually in the bank account. And so you want to have, a, a, um, I call it revenue cycle management um, process in place to really kind of navigate that. You, you just mentioned the other kind of key key acronym there, which is Electronic Health Record EHR or EMR, depending on which acronym mm -hmm. folks use and how they see it. Um, that piece is certainly another consideration when you're looking at claim management. And I know using a system myself that there's automatic generation of a super bill at the end of a month that's automatically sent to a client, things like that, where we do opt-ins or opt-outs. Um, we have, and I should note for our listeners, we have a couple of different podcast episodes that are about um, the kind of law and ethics of electronic health records and how to even approach choosing one. For out-of-network providers, why do you think it's really helpful for them to have a system that they're using in a, main, uh, a streamlined way of approaching these kind of things? Yeah, I think that, again, from just a practice management perspective, we think if we don't pay for the EMR, we're saving money, but it costs you time. Um, and, and we all have an ethical responsibility to maintain the integrity and continuity of the patient record. And an EHR kind of imposes some of that structure. Um, it also, um, I think back to when I was in my clinical period, I'm going to date myself here. And my first clinical job, we had paper records, right? Um, and it was really hard when that building flooded to be able to continue with continuity of care. I had a really hard time getting my hours signed off on because my hours were in a paper record, right? Um, and so we have a responsibility, the insurance company and our ethics boards aren't gonna care if you have to, you know, you're sued and you don't recall what happened in that session and your note is gone, right? And so we have, I think, an ethical responsibility um, to make sure that we preserve that record. Um, there's a, we talk, we, I think we are afraid of the record being um, exposed or audited, but there are some ways in which we actually can advocate for mm -hmm. our clients that we want to think about too, that that record could be the difference between, you know, that client staying in an unsafe place versus us being able to advocate for resources and support for them. Um, and so I think, again, it just makes it easier 
um, to have support. When you have an electronic record, it's not all in your head or in the file that's in your home office that's hopefully locked behind two doors. You know, you can delegate more efficiently um, and run different reports to really track your analytics. How is the practice performing? How what's our account, you know, uh, receivables? What is our insurance aging? You know, those are all types of data that we that indicate the health of your business, right? Um, I think that are important that electronic health records can just make easier to um, understand and make informed decisions. Gosh, Ajeta, I could sit here and talk with you about this for a really long time, and we would probably continue to find topics and questions because honestly, this stuff is really complicated. And there are folks like you that have this specialization that are such a service to the clinical community, because many of us, we just don't think this way. <laughs> you know, the, the business part of it, the nuts and bolts, it's, it's very concrete sometimes, sometimes not so concrete. Yes. Um, and it's a whole nother, um, a whole nother weight, I guess, on our brains when we're primarily here because we love people and we want to do this right. direct service. So thank goodness for people like you that have this information. Um, Dr. Robinson, again, for our listeners, this is Dr. Ajeta Robinson. How can people get in touch with you and learn more about your work, about your trainings, things like that? Absolutely. So anything insurance related, you can find at masteringinsurance.com. Um, you can find anything you want to kind of know about what I'm doing from a practice management perspective. Everything is at my name, ajetarobinson.com. And if you go to the companies tab, the mastering insurance um, company is listed there to link you right over. Um, that's where I hang out. I also have a Facebook group called Mastering Insurance for Mental Health Professionals, where we just provide a wealth of information and community. Um, and so you can hang out in any of those places. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, also quick reminder that Dr. Robinson has a wonderful blog. So a lot of this information may be available. Her first name is spelled A-J-I-T-A, uh, in case you want to look her up. So again, it's Ajeta Robinson. Um, thank you to our listeners. Thank you so much to Dr. Robinson for joining us and shedding some light on this issue of in network versus out of network and some of the things that we need to keep in mind if we're going to to bite off that that chunk of funding essentially <laughs> absolutely and thank you so much for having me wonderful thank you you've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by clearly clinical if you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.